Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, welcome to Fever Dreams. Uh, my name is Will Summer. I'm a political reporter at The Daily Beast and the author of an upcoming book on QAnon for HarperCollins. And I'm Aswin Subtang, but please call me Swin. I'm a senior political reporter at The Daily Beast and co-author of the book Sinking in the Swamp. All right, here on Fever Dreams, we're going to take you on plunges into the sometimes hilarious and sometimes scary world of the American right as they continue to influence our politics. Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, these grifters, and these influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point. So, Will, when we address during a prior episode, Mark Meadows just continuously punching himself in his own dick and just continuing to torpedo in all kinds of different ways his relationship with Donald Trump. I thought that that was going to be maybe a one episode type deal. He keeps doing it over and over again in just completely baffling ways to the point where it almost deserves like a deep dive podcast in its own right. <laughs> we'll do a 10 episode run on Mark Meadows is bumbling. Yeah, how Mark Meadows is a fuck up.com. I was just thinking over the weekend, there's kind of like talk about like, well, Mark Meadows has this book out, but do people know that this book is called The Chief's Chief? What an idiotic name for a book. <laughs> there's been a lot of like book, book, book. And of course, I mean, this book, I haven't seen the sales figures, but I mean, it is just like nowhere to be seen. I think it was just written that Kaylee McEnany's book is crushing it like a tin can also came out recently. But anyways, so the hot new thing here is that unlike some perhaps little savvier members of Trump's inner circle, your Roger Stones, your Steve Bannons, who sort of immediately said, well, we're going to plead the fifth or we're not going to cooperate. And they didn't hand over their private communications and documents. That's very important. If you want to say something is a witch hunt, you might not want to give them all your shit and like copy your cell phone for them. You don't give them your spell book. So basically what happened here, right, is Mark Meadows hands over his phone to the January 6th committee and all these text messages and emails come out. And we'll see what happens with that with Mark Meadows. But in the meantime, there are some very interesting text messages coming out between both Fox News hosts and Mark Meadows and some unnamed Republican lawmakers. Right. And just to be clear, this is stuff that Mark Meadows handed over to the committee while there was some sort of pro forma kind of theatrical, maybe not even real negotiations between him and his lawyers and the January 6th committee on Capitol Hill of him maybe sort of coming in to testify. Those negotiations very predictably broke down. And then he decided, oh, wait, now I'm deciding to, again, not cooperate with you and basically follow the same route of Trump and everybody on down from him in the hierarchy who is trying to denounce this investigation as yet another persecution of them just to back away from it and say, OK, refer me to DOJ. I'm not talking to you guys. But like you pointed out, Will, everybody else had the common sense during that interregnum to not hand over a bunch of incriminating documents. <laughs> and so the, the thing that's making news here right now is these text messages between Mark Meadows and Fox News hosts like Sean Hannity and Laura Ingram. One thing we always like here on the podcast, in particular with Fox News, is when you can kind of pierce the veil and see what these people are really thinking, and especially when it's completely at odds with their public statement. Oh, not just what they are thinking, what Donald Trump's eldest son, Don Jr., was thinking in real time during the riot. <laughs> a guy 
who, like everybody else high up in the Trump orbit during the months leading up to the riot, was heavily promoting this fraud bullshit, this fraud narrative. Obviously, Don Jr. spoke at the rally that his father spoke at right before the riot started happening. Right. So this gives us a glimpse inside what these Fox hosts are actually thinking. And then it's at odds with what they're saying publicly. So, for example, I mean, tell me what Laura Ingram was texting Mark Meadows as the rioters are breaking in. OK, Laura Ingram, who is someone who basically right after the riot happened, obviously, she's been a close buddy to Trump uh, for many years, basically started immediately floating conspiratorial bullshit about maybe Antifa was behind this and just starting up, revving up the engine about how this wasn't so bad. In real time, she was texting Trump's White House chief of staff, telling him that Trump needs to come out and denounce this and that this is making us all look bad and that Trump is destroying his legacy by egging this shit on. <laughs> yeah, right. And so then later that day, she comes out and says, look, this was Antifa, all this kind of stuff. So it's really at odds, the, the public statements and, and what's going on privately. I mean, Sean Hannity and Brian Kilmeade similarly begging, you've got to get Trump out there to calm these people down. And then this is the same network that months later is acting like this was a tourist thing and whatever bad happened. It was the treacherous Antifa. Right. Brian Kilmeade texted, quote, please get him on TV, destroying everything you have accomplished. That was him in real time on January 6th, blowing up the phone of the White House chief of staff, trying to get the president of the United States to, I don't know, go on TV or Twitter.com to say something like, please don't riot in my name. Something very simple and boilerplate like that. Laura Ingram texted, quote, Mark, the president needs to tell people in the Capitol, go home. This is hurting all of us. He is destroying his legacy, end quote. The this is hurting all of us is my favorite part of any of these Fox News text messages and really gives up the game about like what this is really about from the president at the time was making horrible PR decisions on behalf of every MAGA shithead with a media platform, including Laura Ingram. And he is making me look bad. Please stop doing this. <laughs> Right. And so then, I mean, I think Don Jr. gets in here and the idea of texting your father's chief of staff to get in touch with your father. I mean, obviously, Succession's in the news right now because of the finale. But it is a very kind of like Kendall Roy succession type of thing where it's like, I don't really have a direct line to my dad. Can you reach him, et cetera? Right. And the quotes from some of the Don Jr. text Mark Meadows are... He's got to condemn this shit ASAP. The Capitol Police tweet is not enough. Mark Meadows responds, I'm pushing hard. I agree. And then Don responds, we need an Oval Office address. He has to lead now. It has gone too far and gotten out of hand. And gotten out of hand. <laughs> Obviously, they're never going to come out, but I would love to see Don Jr.'s other text messages with Mark Meadows. You have to imagine it would be like, do you think this meme is epic? That kind of stuff. That is a group chat I would love to be on. Right. And the last thing I want to say about this right now is that this reminded me a lot of how top MAGA Republicans and certainly top Fox News and Fox Business hosts are currently treating the coronavirus pandemic and have for God knows how long. Privately, you have to assume that all of them, if not almost all of them are super vaccinated. They've probably gotten eight shots by the time May 2021 rolled around. And yet they go on TV every night they're on, basically accusing the vaccine of genocide, saying that COVID-19 vaccines might give your kid rickets or whatever the hell Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram like to say every weeknight. I mean, we talk about the perversity about their profit motive a lot on this podcast, but there just is no bottom to how little they respect their audience. They just treat them like hogs who are there to just, okay, they calculate in their head, what are you stupid enough to believe? And they're just going to say it, even though they're just doing the exact opposite in the dark recesses of their private lives. Okay, 
Moving on for a second. Will Summer, what do we have for us next? All right. Today, we're joined on Fever Dreams by Daily Beast reporter Adam Ronsley to discuss the mysterious case of Kanye West's publicist bothering, harassing, perhaps worse, an election worker. Adam, welcome aboard. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Okay. So I think first we should set up this situation with who Ruby Freeman is, how she found herself at the center of this really massive firestorm that I think people who maybe do not follow this stuff incredibly closely may have missed. But really, I mean, this is just such a case of something we see so often now, which is an innocent person doing nothing at all wrong to having their lives completely ruined by the right-wing media. So Adam, who is Ruby Freeman and how did she find herself at the center of this right-wing controversy? Yeah, Ruby is unfortunately one of the unluckiest women in the world. She is a Georgia election worker who found herself around about this time last year, the subject of a MAGA conspiracy theory. There was a surveillance video of a Georgia polling place that was cut to make it look like something nefarious and votes were disappearing. Ruby was in that video and MAGA folks started tweeting it out as evidence of the non-existent voter fraud that happened in Georgia. And unfortunately for Ruby, not only did this catch the attention of the MAGA world, this caused the attention of the president himself, who tweeted it out and named her about like 18 times in his call with Brad Raffensperger, where he was trying to get Georgia to overturn the election and citing her to Georgia Secretary of State as this is this woman committing fraud. And just about a few weeks ago, Ruby announced that she was suing the Gateway Pundit. Jim Hoft. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Who specializes in these kinds of lawsuits, at least being on the receiving end of them. And if I could just cut in here, Adam, a few weeks ago, we talked about a French documentary about Jim Hoft and they go to the Gateway Pundit Mansion in St. Louis, which is just about the tackiest looking place I've ever seen in my life. Now, I think the question is, will Ruby Freeman owned the Pundit (laughs) Villa, the Gateway Pundit Villa, and including the, I believe, suit of armor Jim Hoft has in his living room? We'll find out. Oh, God. Yeah, well, as part of the renewed attention on Ruby, we've got a new little twist in the story in that a publicist for Kanye West allegedly approached former 2020 presidential candidate Kanye West, just in case our listeners don't recall. Yes. <laughs> approached Ms. Freeman and asked her to basically cop to doing the election fraud and saying that she was there on behalf of a quote-unquote high-profile individual. Now, Kanye's people have come out and said that she was not working as his publicist at that time. I leave it to the reader to figure this one out. But yeah, you got to imagine from Ruby's perspective that after the president has tweeted out your name and gone after you, that all the kinds of things that could go (laughs) through your head when someone shows up at your door and says, I'm here on behalf of a high-profile individual, say you did the goddamn voter fraud. That could open up a lot of possibilities. Okay, so the news about this and Trevian Cuddy's role in all of this start trickling out more and more, including last week with this sort of just morbidly fascinating uh, Reuters story. So for our listeners who got to be wondering, okay, who the fuck is Trevian Cuddy and why does she sound like she has the name of the lamest Pierce Brosnan era Bond villain imaginable? I was just going to say, yeah. Who is this person and why is Alec Trevelyan Cuddy (laughs) trying to overthrow democracy on behalf of her favorite president, Donald Trump? 
And why was this happening in circa the end of 2020? Well, Ms. Cuddy's arc follows Kanye's arc in that Trump may be her favorite president, but the Republican Party was not always her favorite party, is that she actually has donated a few thousand bucks to Hillary Clinton in 2016, ironically enough. This is one of the funniest data points that we found while looking into her background. If you look up campaign finance records, the only name you can find in there, at least according to open secrets in terms of federal records, are donations to Hillary Clinton. (laughs) Granted, this was years ago, but but still, you'd expect to see Donald Trump, maybe a Ted Cruz follow in the intervening years. But no, it's just Hillary, 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 Hillary. But much like Kanye, soon she was drawn to the magnetic charm of Donald Trump. And she has spent the past few years being a Trump stan, both on social media and IRL. If you poke around photographs at the infamous Oklahoma rally, the rally that killed Herman Cain, allegedly, the rally that marked the beginning of the end of Brad Parscale's role in the campaign because it was so ill-attended and a bunch of TikTok teens <laughs> fake tickets for it. You can see her in the crowd right now next to the Oklahoma governor holding up the the Black Voices for Trump sign. And if you poke around social media a little bit, friend of the pod, Mike Lindell, gave Ms. Cuddy a ride to the rally on his private jet, along with what I gather are some pretty close friends, Alveda King, who is the niece of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who is a conservative Fox News green room favorite, as well as Angela Stanton King, who was pardoned by Donald Trump. Both of them had political careers in Georgia. (laughs) Thinky face emoji. (laughs) Angela Stanton King ran in Georgia as a Republican and lost (laughs) 85 to 15 (laughs) to the Democratic contender for the congressional seat there. And her friend Trevian Cootie was very, very uh, convinced that this was Only the results of voter fraud. Also, I would just point out that, as you might imagine, Angela Stanton King, very big QAnon fan. Goes without saying that Q's getting his beak wet in this whole thing. I mean, this is an example of what, for lack of a better term, a kind of plot or a kind of scheme that you might call a burn after reading kind of thing, right? We come upon these things every so often on the podcast. And I think this idea of these kind of like subterranean schemes that are going down and often very clumsily, but then sometimes they work. So like I'm thinking of, for example, a few years ago, this meeting between Fox News guest Ed Batowski, Lara Logan's husband, all these internet trolls to discuss allegedly wiretapping Seth Rich's family. And I'm not saying these schemes are connected, but they're kind of a similar type of scheme. This case where Mike Lindell spirits off this county clerk in Colorado who allegedly helped people break into voting machines and supposedly hides her. Another case in Arizona where Michael Flynn's people supposedly keep another woman in hiding. And this idea that I think also of like the QAnon kidnapping gang that I've written about these these kind of people who like it's like we're not just going to tweet about this anymore. We're taking this onto like weird political action. And I think if we could just really sort of break down what happened here with Trevi and Cuddy. So she shows up at Ruby Freeman's place and she's like, look, you're in danger. But it's sort of like maybe in danger from people on my side of things. They go to a police station. Nice fake election you have there would be a shame if anything would happen to it. What's sort of the vibe you get in both the video and the article that came out? That's a great way to sum it up, right? I mean, Ruby Freeman has found herself in this just maelstrom and someone's like, I'm going to help you. And she says, okay, I'm a little concerned about this. So they go to a police station, which also usefully for everyone interested in this is being recorded. And so... (laughs) 
they have this conversation and she's saying like, Ruby Freeman's like, I don't really understand what you're talking about. And then I think like the most important thing here, okay, I'm going to quote here from the article. So Cuddy's saying like, you are a loose end for a party that needs to tidy up, which is like very ominous concerning stuff. I cannot say what will take place. I just know that it will disrupt your freedom and the freedom of one of more of your family members. These plots always have like a menace, but they have a little humor to them, right? Right. It's like she's trying to be Warren Beatty in the movie Bugsy or something like that. According to Freeman, Cuddy told her that she was going to put a man named Harrison Ford on speakerphone. You might say, Harrison Ford from American Graffiti? No. Freeman said the man on the phone wasn't the actor by the same name. And then the Cuddy said the man had authoritative powers to get you protection. I mean, and so basically at one point, Ruby Freeman's like, whoa, this is crazy. She jumps up and gets the cops, all this kind of stuff. I mean, Trevin Cuddy's not facing any charges over this, but this is a very just kind of strange plot. And I think what Adam's reporting demonstrates is that this is not someone just off the street. I mean, this is someone who has some shady connections within the larger Trump world apparatus. Yeah, I mean, so I took the liberty of diving through her suspended Twitter account. She has a new Twitter account. I guess Twitter has not caught on to the fact that she's back, even though they they suspended her old one. And on her old one, you can see her at one point, and who knows if this is true. I mean, believe it or not, some people may have been known to exaggerate on Twitter.com. But at one point, shortly after, I believe it was around November 5th, she tweets a picture of herself on the phone saying that she's on the phone with the Trump campaign lawyers in Nevada getting a briefing on what the Trump campaign is doing to overturn the election there. And she's also like, I realize the Kanye people say that she's no longer affiliated with them. But like, if you scroll through her Instagram account, like she's kind of like a zealot at all these like A-list parties. She's tweeting photos of herself with like Julia Roberts and Sting and Michael B. Jordan and director Regina King. And I'm like, you have no access to celebrity other than through Kanye. So how are you continuing? This sort of seems like the phrasing they're saying, like she was not operating in that capacity. It kind of seems like for the 30 minutes where she was talking to Ruby Freeman, she was not working for Kanye. <laughs> the other thing I would say about Kanye's involvement here is, or alleged involvement or the ties here, is that it's like, you really think that guy would be up to something suspicious? The guy who's been wearing a Michael Myers mask for the past month? <laughs> <laughs> and you're right on the menace is like, if you go through her deleted tweets, one of the ones I pulled out that sort of stuck out at me is like shortly after the announcement of the Stop the Steal rally on January 6th, she tweets, if you are going to bring us patriots, this is she tweeting to Donald Trump, if you are going to bring us patriots to D.C. on January 6th, you better unleash every military executive power you have to save our republic, hashtag by any means necessary. Well, I think this story is definitely one that bears future watching. I'm sure it will reappear. Moving on to something else that we've been tracking over the past few days, Adam, you have also been doing deep dives, not just on the Kanye West associate who was trying to kill American democracy, but also on this little PowerPoint presentation that, as we now know, was floating around, not just in various places within MAGA world, but within the upper echelons of the Trump White House, including within Mark Meadows's own inbox. Now, this is a PowerPoint that, much like the other memos and documents that have come out over the past year, were uh, basically Trump people or pro-Trump people actively floating ideas to the heights of executive power on how to kill Joe Biden's win and allow Trump to cling to power basically indefinitely. This PowerPoint has sort of seized the imagination of a lot of people, certainly on certain corners of political D.C., what is it? And can you tell us a little bit more about its providence? Yeah. So as part of the January 6th committee's sort of continuing 
dump of the materials that they're getting from right the the ongoing burn book that is yeah, exactly. uh, the Liz Cheney and Benny Thompson committee and so one of the things in there is a briefing it's a powerpoint briefing and in various titles it's described as options for January 6th and it's basically a regurgitation of a lot of the more batshit theories from the usual suspects the Colonel Phil Waldron who is the animating thought behind the Antrim County suit and a lot of the conspiracy theories about Dominion and their voting machines. And basically on the strength of that, it recommends that the Trump administration try to nullify the election. Right. And since we were talking about Mark Meadows earlier, again, this is an example of something else that is in the public domain and the January 6th committee members got their hands on because Mark Meadows decided to just hand it over to him before he decided to stop cooperating again. Now, usual partisan defenders or the pro-Trump individuals or anti-anti-Trump people have been saying for days, why are liberals lighting their hair on fire about this? This is just something that was in Mark Meadows' inbox. There's no proof yet that he really did anything with it. First of all, that's a hilarious defense in itself because this doesn't look that different compared to all the things and the documents they did do or try to do things with. Also, what the fuck was it doing in Mark Meadows' inbox anyway? Can I play devil's advocate here? Let me stick up for Mark Meadows. People send me crazy stuff all the time. Now, admittedly, I'm not... Uh, but are you soliciting it? He was actively soliciting this shit at well, the time. Well, I will say, I mean, the sort of the giveaway here is that these people were close enough. So this is a document that was floating around. It is of uncertain origins, but it has been linked to people like Phil Waldron, who is one of these kind of the leading election fraud cranks. It bears the ideological imprimatur of Jovan Hutton Pulitzer. I will say it does not just bear the ideological imprimatur. Is This is one of the, <laughs> I ended up tweeting it out. And I was like, oh, that should have been a story. If you go through just basic open source research nerd shit just go through screenshot some of the slides and reverse image search them and like literally these slides were taken from Jovan Pulitzer's batshit brief to Georgia legislators that ended up failing in his attempt to try to get them to overturn it so it's yeah not just the ideological stuff like literally copy pasta from a Jovan Pulitzer briefing Jovan Pulitzer having the best bio tag that I've ever seen for anyone a quote-unquote failed treasure hunter well yes he gets very sensitive about the treasure hunter issue I just want to make clear that's from some Georgia officials who have criticized him. Jovan. Jovan is the self-described commander of Treasure Force, I believe. This is a gentleman who had this whole kind of saga where he claimed he found a Roman sword on an island in Canada. There was a whole History Channel show about it. Basically, a lot of people familiar with this kind of thing say this is essentially a souvenir sword of much more recent origin. So this is the kind of guy you want. And that's like, we're scratching, that's about like 20% of the Jovan biography. I mean, it's so much crazier than that. But basically, this is the kind of guy you want. You're sort of like whispering as the country's on the verge of a coup. It's like, yes, this was in his inbox, but I'm pretty sure if I had some like batch theories about Amtrak funding that I probably couldn't get it in Ron Klain's inbox. <laughs> <laughs> and the other thing is that like we've seen him do this before is when the I think it was the House Oversight Committee was dumping stuff that was floating to the Justice Department in December of 2020, where Mark Meadows is basically just passing along whatever the hell he gets. It's not that it just shows up in his inbox. Obviously, we don't know how this came about and where necessarily Mark sent it or where he may have briefed it to. But like we 
we know he has done this before with like the Italian satellite bullshit where he's just like, eh, here you go. Right. The stuff he was passing around the federal government at the time in the attempt to keep Trump in power was just as nutty as this PowerPoint. There was like zero daylight between the two. Adam, can you tell us more about how there's basically a billion versions of this PowerPoint on the Internet? And if you trace the metadata? Yes. So just quick open source nerdery is that everyone has sort of added on to it. Yes. And so this thing, it's it reminds me a lot of the Mueller investigation in the sense that like everybody is looking for some hidden smoking gun. Meanwhile, all of the stuff that was noteworthy was just basically happening in public. And when the January 6th committee first started releasing bits of this, everybody started going back and looking for sort of the pathogenesis of this thing and how it got out. And there's like a million goddamn versions of this thing on the internet that have been sitting there for a year. It was on Patriots.win. Lara Logan had a version of it. You look at the metadata on the version that Lara Logan tweeted out. It's basically came mail app. So somebody clearly emailed it to it to her. There was a role like dot ppt powerpoint version of it some of them are pdfs the metadata changes from person to person probably because it's different people getting different versions of it or someone prints out a pdf of it from their email and it changes a little bit the point being is that like this was floating around this wasn't secret and as my tracing it to jovan pulitzer proves is that parts of this were just publicly being briefed to lawmakers so this this was not a huge secret And Adam, another point that you've brought up in the past is that so much of those months leading up to January 6th within the White House, within Trump land, was just a snake eating its own anti-democratic tail. All these different guys working for Donald Trump, whether in the administration or on his legal team, were just circulating and receiving all this stuff, which was barely worth the dignity of a gateway pundit blog post. And they were just getting it in the hands of hyper-influential people, including in the Trump administration. And just by virtue of it getting in the hands of someone like the White House chief of staff, and then they basically tried to make it seem like that in itself made it legitimate and then start rolling with it. In a weird way, it is their incredibly stupid Trumpy version of the Steele dossier, the thing they hate so much. Exactly. All of a sudden takes on a new valence when it comes from a .gov address. And there's always going to be on both parties. Obviously, one party has a lot more of them. But like you didn't see Obama officials like mailing around Andrew Sullivan's crackpot bullshit theories about Trig Palin's birth. Right. Right. And then using it as an excuse to cancel the election and have Mitt Romney sent to prison or something like that. Exactly. Like people like that were rightly ignored and left to rant and foam at the moon. But when it comes from a .gov address, all of a sudden it changes things. And that is the sort of coda to the Trump administration is that all of the normal batshit stuff that would flow under the radar ended up coming from .gov email addresses. Adam, fascinating stuff. Please come back anytime to fill our heads with more of this insanity. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So, Will, my understanding is that for this next segment, you have invited yet again more podcast competitors onto our (laughs) podcast so we can give them free advertising. Do I understand that correctly? (laughs) They're podcast comrades in the the greater podcasting struggle. So today we've got Dan Friesen and Jordan Holmes. They have a podcast about InfoWars and sort of its larger media environs. I think it'll be pretty interesting. I think it's an interesting time for InfoWars and Alex Jones. He just recently lost a whole slew of Sandy Hook lawsuits. I think there's a lot of interesting stuff going on right now about Alex Jones's influence on the larger media, even as Alex Jones sort of falls behind. And also he recently teamed up with a hypnotist. So no one knows Alex Jones and InfoWars better than these guys. So it should be good. 
Fever Dreams, like all Daily Beast journalism, exists because of the generous support of Beast Inside members, the people who pay to access Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet. Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, plus access to members-only podcast episodes, events, and much more. Head to feverdreams.thedailybeast.com today to see what you've been missing. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Okay, this week on Fever Dreams, we're joined by the hosts of the Knowledge Fight podcast. These are the guys who know everything about Alex Jones and InfoWars, and we're having them on at what I think is a very kind of tumultuous time for InfoWars, and also a hypnotist has entered the scene over there. So these are the guys to have on. So we're joined by Dan Friesen. Hey, hello. And Jordan Holmes. Uh, That's me. Guys, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much. Very excited to have a chat. I was waiting for you to explain that the tumultuous time was that we're recording this in the morning, our time. So Mm -hmm. that's tumultuous (laughs) for us. Yeah. (laughs) The emotional difference between 11 and 1 is staggering. Spectacular. (laughs) Well, you know, speaking of your own podcast, Knowledge Fight, you guys are really getting up there. I mean, we're into what, like 600 something episodes now? We're pushing 630. (laughs) We're really getting up there. We were getting up there 300 episodes ago. (laughs) We're way past up there we're on yeah. an uncomfortable level of number of episodes i kind of hate it because i only started numbering the episodes because people were getting confused and they were like when did that happen and like <laughs> trying to have a reference point for episodes and then as i've numbered them it gets really depressing getting up into the 600s it's kind of like a dude who's in prison like scratching the wall yes. you know for each day <laughs> yeah I have not heard it described like that, but yes. Just pans out and it's the whole wall. And there's no release date. (laughs) Do you guys ever take a break? Like, do you ever do like a special Christmas or Hanukkah episode about someone who is not Alex Jones? Yes, we do, but not holiday based. No, not generally. We used to do episodes about this YouTube channel called Project Camelot. And it was this lady who had a bunch of weirdos who would tell her about how they talk to aliens. And Mm -hmm. there's a lot of QAnon adjacency in her alien world. But it became less fun at a certain point because it veered deeply into, like, anti-Semitism. Yeah. Whenever Alex says globalists, it's very much a code word for an anti-Semitic concept. But then you go to Project Camelot and you're like, oh, well, see, what's happening is they're talking about aliens. And then you go further and you're like, oh, no, the aliens are just Jews. Yeah. God damn it. The Nordics are white people. Yeah. The Pleiadians have very almost translucent skin. And you're like, Jesus fucking Christ, man. A little on the nose. (laughs) This is a little bit of a weird thing to say about Alex Jones and InfoWars, given the uh, lawsuits that are currently cracking him over the head. But he does often have like at least a veneer of plausible deniability on certain things. Like when you were talking about like the globalists and stuff, it is very coded in a way that, okay, yes, if you look at the broad tapestry of InfoWars, there's a bunch of screechy anti-Semitism like right below the surface, but it's just a little bit hidden. It's just a little bit hidden. 
Well, it's like globalism is an idea. Like, it is a thing that does exist. Right, right, But right, the right. way he portrays these globalists, there's basically protocols of the elders of Zion, ideas and <laughs> right. blood libel, adrenochrome conspiracies and yeah. shit. So you guys have had this <laughs> podcast now for four years plus. It's such an unusual thing to have a podcast just primarily about Infowars. How did you all get started on that? Like, the whole story? Well, <laughs> like, uh, no, the reason, fade in 1999. <laughs> the reason I had a little pause there is just it was never intended to be this long of a thing. <laughs> like if I had known starting that it would be like five, six years later and I would still be sort of full time looking at Infowars, I don't know if I would have started. But it started just because guy was confused about Alex Jones. Mm-hmm. I started seeing him getting into Trump. And that seemed out of sync with the guy that I had remembered seeing, like, yelling about stuff. And right. 9-11 conspiracies and Bush is just as evil as Gore kind of nonsense. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so I was like, wow, he's getting in bed with Trump. That seems bizarre. And I wanted to learn more. And at the time, me and Jordan were hanging out a lot. We did stand up together. Mm-hmm. So we were out at a bar and got to drinking. <laughs> I was like, hey, this is interesting. We want to talk about it. <laughs> it was and then we did it. Protracted conversation of the type that we now have on the podcast. We used to do it for free back then. Then he just was like, hey, let's do a show about it. And I said yes. And then the next day we started doing this show. And then it's kept going. And then it's just never stopped. So as a result, you've sort of become these maybe accidents accidental experts in InfoWars and Alex Jones. How would you describe the state of InfoWars and Alex Jones right now? I mean, what is going on with them? Should we use words or just screeching sounds? Because I think the <laughs> screeching sounds would be a lot clearer an explanation of how they're doing right or, now. Or some sounds like, uh, <laughs> yeah, show me your will. Yeah. <laughs> Show me your will. (laughs) It doesn't seem good over there at the moment. There's a real smell of desperation in the air because you have the Sandy Hook cases that he has lost by default. He currently is still being sued by Brennan Gilmore about the things he said about the Unite the Right rally. Mm -hmm. There's a number of things that are pressing down on his head. And it seems like in response to it, he's selling things like that silver coin. Yep. He's getting back into selling metals. $130 for a $20 coin, baby. That's how you do it. It's a war bond. It's a war bond. That's how he's describing it? (laughs) That's how he's selling it. Yes. Yes. It's a war bond. Sure. It's super overpriced, (laughs) but it's a truth bond for the Uh, war against uh, the globalists. Didn't Cary Grant used to sell those in the First World War or whatever it was? There's a slight difference. Yeah. (laughs) One of them was backed by the government. (laughs) The other one is slightly different. Yeah. And then, as you referenced, he's getting hooked up with this hypnotist, Jake Ducey, and trying to sell this online course in how to free your mind. Oh, yeah. It's like uh, if you've ever hit rock bottom and you didn't see a hypnotist there, you didn't hit rock bottom yet. Like that kind of level of sadness so yeah break this out i mean so this thing with the hypnotist is called reset wars i mean is the reset is this meant to be like resetting alex jones after the sandy hook lawsuit i mean what's going on there it would be appealing to think that but the more i've learned about it i think it's less that and more a cash grab for alex he's selling it as like the most important work he's ever done in his career but like let's imagine he survives the storm and he's still around in a year he's gonna pretend it never happened oh never this is not like this is not this is not proud this is not uh, stuff you're proud of taking home with you it very much feels like he's a hired gun for a weirdo hypnotist yeah who wants a big name to attach to this series that he's putting out right and alex is very viable right now yeah i mean they got him in the middle of a stream to tell you about the future or whatever yeah alex is standing in a creek (laughs) talking about transcending or something it was 
bizarre. That's good stuff. That's one thing you never want is to be the junior partner in a sort of scheme with a hypnotist. (laughs) (laughs) How can you ever know you're in charge of yourself, right? Mm -hmm. So Anna Merlin advice, who we've had on the podcast in the past, she had an article last week arguing that Alex Jones is in some ways a victim of his own success and that a lot of his, what he brought to the table, which was kind of this conspiratorial take on the news, has sort of been taken from him and adopted by people who are not quite as toxic. So Tucker Carlson putting out a January 6th, quote unquote, documentary. You have QAnon, which obviously has a lot of feuds with Alex. Do you think that's what's going on here is that Alex has, has lost some of his edge and what made him unique because it's become so ubiquitous? And you literally had... Tucker Carlson on air during his highly rated Fox News show telling his viewers that Alex Jones was actually a more reliable journalist than a lot of the journalists they see on CNN and other networks. Like he was just explicitly saying that. He's a good guide to reality. I think the dynamic that you see goes actually two directions. There's one that like a lot of the stuff that he was doing has become accepted by Tucker and he's doing it in a more banal, less yelling about demons. It's more palatable to old people Mm -hmm. like Fox's audience. Sure. And then simultaneously, a lot of the other stuff that Alex was doing is being adopted by even more caustic, dangerous people. And they're picking up that mantle. So there's some people who are on the fringier fringe who are appealing to some of that stuff that appealed to Alex's audience. Mm -hmm. And then simultaneously, Tucker is doing some of the more imaginary, like it's pretending to be reputable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I would say that Alex hasn't lost what makes him unique in the space, because what makes him unique is that he has no boss and no filter and is just he's nuts. He's just nuts, screaming, losing his mind all the time. That's what makes him unique. His propaganda techniques are older than dirt. The blood libel stuff you can scream about comes from the 500s or whatever it is. A little off. (laughs) A little off. Whatever. (laughs) I'm not the time guy. But what makes him unique is still front and center. I mentioned this somewhere on the podcast before, but I want to get you guys' take on this. Years ago, there was a friend I knew in Washington, D.C. who used to work for like a major libertarian or conservative grassroots organization that had offices all around the country. Of course, they had a presence in Washington, D.C. And he said that when he got there, one of his supervisors told him, "Okay, when we send you out into the rest of the country, outside of places like New York City and Washington, D.C., you will notice that libertarians who people who identify themselves as libertarians out in the, for instance, the vast middle of America will not sound like you or me. They will not sound like scholars at the Cato Institute. So the supervisor recommended to this friend of mine that he start watching Alex Jones, not to get into it, not to subscribe to the ideology, but just to regularly stream the show online, because then you will understand the language that your run-of-the-mill grassroots libertarian will be using outside of D.C. elite polite society or whatever you want to call it. Does that ring true to you at all in terms of not just now? Because you guys are talking about how the Alex Jones philosophy on uh, propagandizing with Tucker Carlson and other people has become sort of made more respectable. They've put it in a suit. But in a way, have you noticed that over the years, if not decades, it's kind of been like that for a long time. It's just been a little bit underneath the surface in terms of national media. I think kind of. I would assume that the time period that you're talking about this friend is a bit back. Like, I don't know around what time period was this. Bush era. Yeah, that makes some sense. And even with like the rise of the Tea Party time, could see that being like, okay, this is how we're going to be conversant with this sort of school of libertarian. (laughs) (laughs) Libertarians self-identify as that, but just really are like, I don't know, Ron Paul's cool. Someone who knows Admiralty 
sovereignty law is an issue. <laughs> Bordering on sovereign citizen yeah, type. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think now what's going on is that there's a lot of weird stuff that Alex may talk about that's being picked up into like Tucker spheres and stuff. But a lot of it is really actually based on a non-awareness of what Alex's show actually is. Right. There's a lot of people who think like, oh, he just has conspiracy theories and he talks about that's not really what his show is now like if your friend was having this person tell them to listen to alex's show to be conversant in how people outside of these bubbles talk he would be listening to alex's show and being like well i guess people in middle america yell about the devil all the time (laughs) (laughs) it wouldn't be that far off yeah, I guess they <laughs> sing along to songs constantly and have petty grievances and talk about how the devil tried to recruit them a bunch as a child. Like, Alex's shit is very unhinged, and I yeah. don't think that most people really even recognize how much. No, and you add on top of that the new layer of just not even hidden bloodthirst. We're talking the level of people think, oh, he's the guy who says you're turning the frogs gay. And a few episodes ago, we hear him say, listen, if your family's taking the vaccine, I'm not saying you have to kill them, but I'm not saying that it's a terrible idea. Well, it might be time to start thinking about it. It might be time to start thinking about it. It's like Black Friday shopping. You got to get there early. Sure. Yeah. I think that there's a perception of what his show is, and it's bad, but the actuality of what it is is way worse. But also, in some ways, a little bit more entertaining. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I do think that's an interesting divide between sort of the meme version of Alex Jones and the the real Alex Jones that broadcasts, what, three hours a day? Yeah, at least. Yep. You see him go on these podcasts like Red Scare podcast, or I feel like every so often he goes on kind of like a bro-y comedy podcast, and it's just like, oh, it's the frog's gay guy. But I mean, y'all are like really up. You're at kind of like the bleeding face of InfoWars development. What do you think the difference is there that the general public doesn't know about Alex Jones? Well, I mean, there's a ton of things. Oh, yeah. But the dynamic of going on shows like Red Scare or Flagrant 2 or Rogan Mm -hmm. is that it's the same sort of thing they've seen done over history, and that is people with extreme ideas need to some way mainstream themselves. And so what they do is they tamper down what their extreme ideas are Mm -hmm. in order to make themselves more palatable to the audience that's watching this thing that isn't ready for the hardcore version of what they do. And so Alex plays that game incredibly well. You see that on Rogan a lot. Like, he'll go on there and just deny very basic things that he talks about pretty regularly. What specifically? It's really tough to say. My mind is spinning thinking of specifics. I think specifically the biggest difference is not that Alex is some sort of conspiracy theorist so much as he is a religious zealot at this point with a brand of Christianity that is both incomprehensible and unrelated to any version of the holy book we might consider the basis for that. So if you're looking at Alex Jones as like a conspiracy theorist who's like 9-11 truther and all of this stuff. The banks are bad. The banks are bad. What you're going to find out is that he is trying to become the Pope God King of America, I guess. Something along those lines. Yeah, he's, he pushes like a very hard Christian nationalism. Mm-hmm. And does he say what denomination or sect <laughs> he is? I'll tell you what he's not. <laughs> <laughs> He is not very specific about that, but he does complain about the glitter bug churches, as he calls them, which is basically just anything. So Baptist. Well, he would say that any church that isn't actively anti-abortion mm. and as isn't actively trying to 
arm the entire congregation mm-hmm. isn't really Christian. That's and isn't actively donating to InfoWars. And Trump. And Trump, yes. Well, Trump a while ago. Right, right, right. All of these things are interconnected. I think you make a good point, though, Jordan. And I think that is one of the things that is under the surface is you think that this is a political show and it's actually very much a evangelical, mm-hmm. not the denomination evangelical, no, but no, it's no, evangelizing no. Yes. at its core. Mm-hmm. And the other thing, too, that never comes across in these like these interviews that he does is how much he's a fickle little baby. (laughs) So much of his content is influenced by his mood. And you really have to watch his show for a while to get the sense of this, that when there's bad news in his life and things are not going well, we're 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 all going to die. The globalists have already killed us. We're being murdered en masse. There's There's no way to escape. Get into the forest. You need to go. And then two days later, he'll feel better and he'll be like, hey, look, we're winning. We're ahead of the bad guys. We're up 60 to nothing. They've got no chance to defeat us. We're winning the info war. I think that that really is like an aspect of his show that he doesn't want people to really uh, be too aware of mm. because it kind of undercuts the whole like I did a bunch of research thing. I think this is something that comes up a lot on your podcast is did you say how affected the show is by his mood and how often he's threatening to quit. That's my favorite. <laughs> That's my favorite thing that I've ever seen. He storms off the broadcast uh, a lot. We gotta go to rebroadcast. He overprepares sometimes. <laughs> he's just That's too the prepared. Yeah. So I mean how do you think the Sandy Hook lawsuit have affected InfoWars and Alex Jones and how do you think this all is going to shake out? Well I think it's going great. I think InfoWars is <laughs> Is stronger than ever. Resilient. I think, I think, Vindicated. Absolutely. These words come to mind. I think he's being railroaded by the justice system. <laughs> it's really hard to tell right now what the vibe is and how things are. Like, it feels like a sort of a sort of Damocles hanging over him. And that once we know what the damages are going to be, and once there's a decision about that, it'll be a lot easier to tell. Because like, it could be a situation where... It's a financial blow, but he's able to continue moving forward with the weirdo hypnotist money that he brought in and he can keep doing InfoWars. But there's also a chance that it'll be such a large damages settlement that he has to pay that he could be done. Like, it's possible. It's really hard to tell right now. I got one more question for you guys. Obviously, during the 2016 election and the Republican presidential primary at the time, we saw very clearly, very publicly that there was a relationship, a direct relationship between Donald Trump, then future leader of the free world, and Alex Jones. He'd go on his show. They would say nice things about each other to each other's faces. There was no hiding it. This was the Republican standard bearer saying, okay, this is a guy who I think is a good guy and who I think is worth my time calling after I'm elected to thanking him for all that he and his people have done for me. Donald Trump certainly wasn't alone in this long before Donald Trump appeared that time in, I believe it was mid-2015 on Alex Jones's show, Rand Paul developed a relationship with InfoWars. Like, Republican figures who knew what their base was and what Republican movement politics is today knew what they were doing and chose Alex Jones to be someone they'd actually develop a connection with. What was going through your heads when you started seeing this relationship metastasize publicly between Donald Trump and Alex Jones? Well, I mean, the first thing to remember whenever we're talking about relationships between grifters is that the grift between Donald Trump and Alex was both 
completely non-obligatory on Trump's side. After he wins the election, or even if he doesn't win the election, he doesn't have to give a shit about Alex Jones for the rest well, of his right. life. Right. And it's easy to forget that when Trump went on Alex's show, a lot of it was him trying to sell his book. Yeah. People think it's just like him, a meeting of the minds. Like, we rewrite history a little bit. Yeah. It might have been something where Trump was like, I don't know, some of these dum-dums might buy a book. Totally. How many times did he go on Alex Jones' show? Just once. Just, just once. once. I think people overplay a little bit this notion of the actual connection between the two of them. Alex only had Trump on once, and it was very clearly like a favor that Roger Stone called in. And the actual direct things, like Trump calling Alex after the election to thank him, that comes from Alex. Yeah. I don't know if that's true. Might not be. Yeah. Probably not. I don't, could be. I don't think that there was no connection and no like allyship that was felt. And like Alex is somebody that you could very much be like, I can use this guy. Yeah. You, you could see that. But in terms of the level of connection that I think it may be way less than people think. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a misconception that there was some sort of coordination between Alex and Trump or some sort of like give and take between Alex and Trump. When in reality, Trump was exploiting Alex and Alex was exploiting Trump. And who cares? The moment that they're both not useful to each other, they're going to try and kill each other. It doesn't matter. Yeah. And, and they Alex, don't give a shit. Alex would even say like, we don't even need to communicate. We communicate telepathically. Exactly. Yeah, We're yeah. on the same wavelength. <laughs> yeah, 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 like, yeah. Well, you can't get a more direct connection than that. So <laughs> I don't. That smells like somebody who doesn't talk to a person very much mm -hmm. and is trying to rationalize it. Yeah. We connect through our minds. <laughs> In terms of like what you're saying about like, what did I think when I saw metastasizing? It felt like that was one of the things that was the most interesting because Ron Paul was always Alex's guy. And that made sense because Ron Paul had no chance ever of winning. Yeah. He was never even going to win the primaries. He was a complete weirdo who just wanted to get rid of every government funding. He's got all of his racist bona fides, too. So you sure. can always follow Ron Paul. And so it made sense for Alex to always support this also ran this three time loser. Mm -hmm. And it feels like when things were getting going with Trump, it might have been a similar sort of impetus that like, I'm going to back this guy, he's going to lose. And then we can be like, wow, he almost won. Yeah, he could have won. He should have won. And we can bitch about the unfairness for the next thousand years. And then he won. And it seems like there might have been a wrench in the gears there, but mm -hmm. it's hard to say. Right. Alex Jones very much was the type of grifter who didn't want to or didn't have the juice to keep the grift going once Trump was already installed and inaugurated in the Oval Office. Like even people like Diamond and Silk would get semi-regular audiences at the White House and even in the Oval Office with Trump while he was the literal president of the United States. Alex Jones couldn't keep that up. Yeah, Lionel went to the White House. <laughs> nuts and alex's particular like brand of politics and his positions it's really difficult to maintain while the person that you are insisting can save the world is in a position where they could do whatever they need to do yeah. and weirdly aren't and so that's why the image of the strong man in the form of like a ron paul is always perfect because it's like well if only they'd give ron a chance he'd yeah. fix everything yeah and just go in there with his big pen knife yeah. and just solve problems. You'll never have a chance to be proven wrong. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, with Trump, kind of got proven wrong. It's not really all that surprising. 
I mean, Pat Robertson was a massive figure in Republican politics long before Alex even got his start. If you don't recognize the theocratic nut job racism from Pat Robertson to Alex Jones, you've lost the thread, you know? Well, guys, I think that's a great way to end it. Again, we're joined here by the host of the Knowledge Fight podcast, Dan Friesen and Jordan Holmes. Guys, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks so much Thank for having Thank you so us. much for having us. It was a delight. Yes, it's uh, wonderful. Okay, for this week's installment of Fresh Hell, Will Summer, you have been tracking sort of the armada of conspiracy theorists and related organizations and their election volunteers and vigilantes who have been kind of going door to door in different parts of the country, trying to tell all kinds of strangers and potential voters about rigged elections that have been that have been very nasty and unfair to people like Mr. Trump and themselves. Will, have you yourself gotten a knock on your door from any kind of person like this? Or is the fact that you reside in Washington, D.C. enough of a barrier culturally and geographically for you? So I don't live in a battleground district. I mean, today on Fresh Hell, I want to talk about a legion of missionaries spreading out across the country on a single-minded mission. And no, I'm not talking about Cutco knife salesmen. No, we've got, this is a new thing. Basically, this is sort of the new stage of election fraud audits. Now, people might remember the Arizona audit, which kind of was a flop. And they say it wasn't a flop, but in practice it was. I mean, they sat through these millions, went through these millions of ballots, didn't really find anything. So now the focus is on these sort of door-to-door canvases. And sort of what happens in these things is this is all over the country. It's in Pennsylvania, Colorado, New Hampshire, and, and of course, Arizona. And they go to people and they say, did you vote at this address? So basically what's going on here, and this is laid out in these stories. There's one in BuzzFeed by Sarah Mims, one in our own publication from Kelly Weil. But basically, like, the initial wave of audits has failed. And so now this is sort of like the people's audit. The earlier kind of audit where you go through ballots and all this stuff. I mean, this costs millions of dollars. It's pretty ineffective. You have to get a lot of approvals from various Republican officials. If you just go door to door and say, hey, did you vote for Biden? It's not really clear how you're supposed to divine voter fraud, but this is sort of the new wave. Okay, so Will, let me just take a wild guess here that these guys are pretty mobbed up with QAnon types. Am I being prejudiced in making that assumption? No, no, you're not wrong to think that there's a QAnon connection here. I mean, I really feel like QAnon is obviously like I'm the QAnon guy. And so maybe this is like, I see QAnon everywhere. But I do think QAnon is kind of like sort of this electric grid that powers so much of this right wing stuff. And when you just like poke it like at all, it's like, oh, we're also total QAnon people. So in Sarah Mims' story in BuzzFeed, she's got this new Hampshire group, these people who are going door to door, they have this Facebook page and she says it's littered with QAnon messages. She talked to the woman running this thing and she's like, so y'all pretty into QAnon, huh? And she says, oh, well, I don't know what that we go one, we go all thing means. I thought that was like, what would Jesus do? So, I mean, this is the kind of stuff we're dealing with here. It kind of does, if you squint, look like a what would Jesus do type thing. Oh, yeah, totally. And in many ways is sort of treated similarly, right? But I think what's interesting here is that this stuff is not really per se illegal, but maybe in bad taste going door to door and asking people who they voted for. But like I said, it's really kicking off in Colorado. It's led by a member of the three percenter militia group that was obviously involved in January 6th. And basically, it seems like Democrats are not really doing anything about this. But you know who is? Ring doorbell. Because so far, the best info we have on these canvassers has been captured on ring doorbells from the interviews they try to do with people. Wait, what is ring doorbell again? It's Amazon video doorbell company. Oh, so Jeff Bezos is trying to subvert the election again. So the company itself is not doing anything, but all this footage is coming out on the, the ring doorbells of these people doing their canvassing and, and BuzzFeed got their hand on one of these videos. It is a very odd thing. There's also a 
another aspect going on here, of course, of the, as Kelly points out in her article, this kind of reliance on the much cheaper and probably much less effective and headline grabbing form of audit, this canvassing, it comes as Lynn Wood, it all comes back to him, as he's feuding with Patrick Byrne, who funded a lot of the more quote unquote serious audits. So now he's like, the real way to get justice is just by getting some of your friends together and maybe going to a Democratic part of town and saying, hey, how many people live here? How many of y'all are Democrats? So like I said, it's not illegal, but I think it certainly verges on a kind of an ugly, potentially voter intimidation. Their bright idea for trying to rig the 2022 elections and then the 2024 elections is to basically do a Cohen Brothers version of the U.S. census? I mean, I think you're right in that this issue is not going away. And I mean, you're talking about groups of people now who are linking up and are sort of coming to know the election fraud vigilantes in their towns and their neighborhoods. And so I think in 2022 and 2024, I mean, often these are like they're kind of in states that, that it's not that crazy that they would vote for Democrats, like in Colorado, for example. And these people kind of become convinced that this is a red state. And so when it inevitably it goes blue again, I think then they can at least question some more people and Potentially more. So I think this is a new trend to keep an eye on. On that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some awesome reporters and other colleagues at The Daily Beast and beyond from politics, popular culture, and other overfed, underdeveloped institutions. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcasting app and share the show on social media or at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer and Swin is at Swin24. Come say hello. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian Demiglio. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.